If you have a Bible, we're going to look at Psalm 105 today. Psalm 105. And I'm going to title the message, God's Sovereign Presence Will Sustain Us in Trial. Psalm 105. And we're going to begin in verse 1. And David writes this psalm, and he says, Oh, give thanks unto the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the people. Sing unto him. Sing psalms unto him. Talk ye of all his wondrous works. Glory ye in his holy name. And let the heart of them rejoice that seek the Lord. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his face evermore. Remember his marvelous works that he has done, his wonders and the judgments of his mouth. O ye seed of Abraham, his servant, ye children of Jacob, his chosen, he is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He has remembered his covenant forever, the word which he commanded to a thousand generations, which covenant he made with Abraham and his oath unto Isaac. And he confirmed the same unto Jacob for a law, and to Israel for an everlasting covenant, saying, Unto thee will I give the land of Canaan, the lot of your inheritance. And when they were but a few men in number, yea, very few and strangers in it, when they went from one nation to another, from one kingdom to another people, he allowed no man to do them wrong. Yea, he reproved kings for their sake, saying, Touch not mine anointed, and do my prophets no harm. Moreover, he called for a famine upon the land, and he brake the whole staff of bread. He sent a man before them, even Joseph, who was sold for a servant or a slave, whose feet they hurt with fetters. He was laid in iron until the time that his word came. The word of the Lord tried him. The king sent and loosed him, even the ruler of the people, and let him go free. He made him lord of his house and ruler of all his substance to bind his princes at his pleasure and teach his senators wisdom. Let's pray. Father, we just ask you, Lord, once again to reveal your word, the truths of your word to us today, and help us all to see, Lord, that your presence with us is the number one thing that will get us through trials, just knowing that your hand is on our lives. And I just ask that you'll make that clear to all of us today as we're gathered here before you in Jesus' name. Amen. So, I think understanding the context of what, when this psalm was given will help us understand the message of the psalm. And so this psalm was given by David to Israel in celebration when David had brought the ark back to Jerusalem after it had been taken away. So he's captured the ark and he wants to bring the ark there. And why does David, what's the big deal about the ark the Ark of the Covenant, because it represents the presence of God. So it was, it was constructed by Moses, and it held the Ten Commandments, the manna, and Aaron's rod that budded. It was four by four, however big that was, four by four by two by two. That's how big the Ark was. It was a box, and it had four rings, two on each side, and a pole was slid through there, and only the priest were allowed to carry that ark. And that's how they had to carry that ark is by the poles, the Levites. But it was where God would literally manifest himself. And Moses would talk to him there. You can read in the Old Testament. And he would talk to God face to face there. 
And the significant thing, so we're, the, whole, the whole message today is about God's presence being with us. And so when Joshua, you know the account, when they came to the River Jordan and they wanted to cross over, remember how they crossed it? What did the Lord say? He says, you have those priests that are carrying that ark. He put a space of about a thousand yards between them and the rest of the people. And God told the priest, when you walk in to the water, now this was not like the Red Sea where it just parted and they had to act their faith a little more this time. They had to act, they actually got their feet wet. And he said, that water will come over those priests' feet. And then, the, by the power of God, the river Jordan became opened. It opened up just like the Red Sea, the waters parted. And here's what Joshua told them. Here's the significance of that. He's saying, when that ark goes before you, the presence of God and those waters of the Jordan River are parted. Joshua said this to the people. He says, hereby you shall know that the living God is among you by what the presence of God in that ark did. And that is how the living God dwelt among the children of Israel, through that ark. It represented God's presence. So that brings us up to the context of Psalm 105. So in the days of Samuel the prophet, when the Philistines attacked Israel, Israel thought, if we can just get the ark here, where this battle's taking place, God will be with us and it'll assure us victory. So they bring the ark from Shiloh to where they are in this battle. And they are so excited, Israel is. It said they let out a shout that the whole earth rang out with their shout. And the Philistines hear this and they are like, oh man, we've heard about this ark and we've heard about this God of Israel and what he did to the Egyptians and they are disheartened. The Philistines said, woe unto us. God has come into their camp. But they're like, wait a minute. We've got to act like men. Well, what are we going to do? Just lay down? They're like, we've got to fight them anyways. And so they go out and fight them. And what happens? You know, having the ark or having a cross around your neck, it's not like some little magic trinket you can have that's going to do something. And that's where Israel was missing it. And so God allowed the Philistines to capture the ark and take it away. And when Eli the priest heard that, and, and he heard that they'd captured the ark and his two sons had been killed in battle, what did he do? It said he fell over backwards and broke his neck in disappointment. And his daughter-in-law hears about that, and she dies in childbirth. After she hears that, she dies in childbirth. But before she died, you know what she named that baby? The baby came out. We all know what she named the baby, don't we? Ichabod. And that means the glory is departed. God's presence and glory had left them. The ark and the glory and the presence of God had departed from Israel. So when it is said that a church is Ichabod, what are we saying about a church like that? That the presence of God has left that church. They may still be meeting, singing, hearing sermons, but it's a dead church. So now... The ark where God manifested his presence is in the hands of who? It's in the hands of the Philistines. And everywhere those Philistines take that ark, those cities are plagued with death. And plagued, period. Emeralds, whatever those exactly are. And so they're finally like, we had need to get this thing back to those people. Because otherwise we're all going to die. The whole Philistine nation, that's what they said. So what did they do? They put it in a new cart. They didn't have any... Bible to tell them what to do, put it in a new cart, sent it to Israel, and it ended up in Beth 
Shemesh in Israel. And the men of Beth Shemesh are so excited. Here's the ark. But guess what happens? They look inside that ark and 50,000 of Israelites, 50,000 of them die for looking inside that ark. And they say, the men there, they say, who can stand before this God? They realize we're messing with something here we didn't have any idea. And this is Israelites. And so they move it to the house of Abinadab. And it stays there until David decides he wants to move that ark from Abinadab to Jerusalem that he has conquered. He wants to move it out of there. So he gets 30,000 chosen men to come and move that ark. And David does what? He says, well, I'll do what the Philistine did. Philistines did. He says, I'll get a new cart, put it in there, and they head out with singing. They're thinking everything's great. They are all happy. And what happens? We know the story. Uzzah reaches out. The road gets a little bumpy. He's afraid we can't let God's ark fall on the ground and touches the ark, doesn't he? And what happens to him? He dies. And David at first is upset. But he is afraid of the Lord because he realizes, I've messed up here somehow. I've, I've got God's anger coming at me. And so they leave the ark at the house of Obed-Edom. And it stays there for three months. And guess what happens to Mr. Obed-Edom? He's got the blessing of God and he's prospering and blessing, I guess, his crops, his cattle, everything was just, you know, super abundant. And David's like, man... That guy's got all the blessing, and I need to find out what I need to get part of that blessing. He's got that because God's presence is with him. And here's the thing. David, in the meantime, he realizes something by seeing this with Obed-Edom. He realizes, one, that God, by his presence, is not out to destroy his people, is he? He's not. His presence has comes to us for what reason? To bless us. But God is holy. He understands that and will not tolerate his holiness or for us and David and all of God's people, his holiness and his word are not going to be disrespected. He understands that now. He wants to bless us with his presence, but it's got to be done in the right way if you want to experience it. And here's the problem. David had not sought, and a king was supposed to know the Bible, and he had not sought God's word for direction on how to bring that ark back. And that's where he missed it, because Numbers 4, chapter 4 says that that ark is only to be carried, as we already said, by consecrated priest, not to be put in a cart. He didn't know that. And the other thing it says in Numbers 4 is, no one, period, is to look inside that ark. So curiosity seekers, it's death, and it was death to them. And so what's the lesson in there for us at this point? So it tells us that it is critical how we worship and how we conduct ourselves and our daily lives that we have got to look to God's word, don't we? And how we want to do that if we want to be blessed as individuals and as a church. So we have to look to his word to find his will in how we conduct ourselves in obedience to him. And that's why we can be blessed. So we can't follow the world like Israel did. They followed and David. They just follow what the world did. Well, God's not going to judge them the same way. They didn't have the revelation. 
So the fact we have these Bibles in this teaching and this revelation we have, I mean, we are responsible, aren't we? To whom much is given, much will be required. So we need to remember that, don't we? Just like them, just like David, we're required. And we shouldn't follow what other churches do just because it seems like it works for them and they seem like they're getting numbers coming in. We need to stick with what the Word says. So that's called pragmatism. You just do something because it works. Well, if it works, but it's against what the Lord wants us to do, that will be a problem down the road. Or we can't even just do what we think sounds reasonable. Now, the Bible does have a lot of leeway in how we do a lot of things. So I'm not saying that. We're not trying to put ourselves under bondage in any sense, but I think it's pretty clear what I'm trying to say. And here's what we have. 2 Timothy 3.16 says this. All Scripture is God-breathed. That's what it says, not inspired. It is breathed out by God and is profitable for doctrine, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. It's for instruction in the right way to live, the right way for us to do things. That the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So if we want to do the Lord's work, and good works to others, however you want to say that, we want to do it in the right way that we can be blessed. We find it out through the Word. That's what it's telling us there in 2 Timothy 3.16. So getting back to our story, after seeing how Odom Edom is blessed, David wants that ark back in the midst of Israel. He wants to bring that ark back to the capital. He wants to get it in the middle of everybody so it's just not one person being blessed. So it says, we read in 1 Chronicles 16, that the Levites... He has them do it the right way, carrying it the right way, bring the ark of God to the tent David has set up in Jerusalem. And when they do that, they offer burnt sacrifices and peace offerings before the Lord. And I'm telling you, this time, everything's good. He's done things the right way. And here's the way David was. This is what makes him such a great king. He really had a heart for the people. It says in there, he blesses the people. And here is where he is the opposite from King Saul. If you all remember, King Saul, they warned, they said, when you get this king, all he's going to do to you people is take from you. He's going to take your children, going to take, he's just a taker. That's all he is. That's what you read. And yet David, his first, you know what he is? He's a giver. Because that's the way the Lord Jesus Christ is, is a giver. And here's what he did. He comes, they bring that ark in, he is so happy. He's got the people there. God's blessing and presence is with him. And it says David gave every man and woman, not just the men, a loaf of bread, a piece of meat, and a cake of raisins. And for them, that was a real blessing. You guys might be like, man, I eat better than that every day. Well, for them, that was a real blessing that David gave them. And it says he appointed certain Levites to minister before the ark of the Lord. And to give thanks and praise to the God of Israel. And that's what was going on that day. It was a day of rejoicing, a day to be in that assembly. And he gave Asap, one of the Levites, this psalm right here. You can read it back in Chronicles, basically word for word. So that is where, that's the background to where this psalm that we're reading today, 105, comes from. Gave it to them to sing. And they are just thrilled that the ark of God has come back. The presence of God has come back to Israel after it's been gone for so long. And they're singing with joy. And that's what we have. Look here, it starts off. Now, <laughs> they sing this psalm, sang this psalm, and this is one that we have sung in the past. Verse 1, Oh, give thanks 
unto the Lord. They're saying, look what God has done for us, his people. Look what he's done. He's made us a great nation, and he's brought himself, his presence back to us. That's what they're saying. And he goes on to say, call upon his name. Give thanks unto the Lord. Call upon his name. He is the one we can call upon, pray to, and see his power manifest to help us out. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the people. Tell the people, tell the nations, tell each other what a great God we have. Look at all the wonders he's done for us, all the testimonies we have every week. And that's how the psalm starts off. You know, and then, and he goes on, sing unto him, sing songs unto him, talk of his wondrous works. Let's glory in his holy name, like we did this morning. Then, at the end of verse 3 and verse 4, three times, David commands the people to seek the Lord. Look at the end of verse 3. Let the heart of them rejoice that seek the Lord. Verse 4, seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his face forevermore. And why is that? Why is David commanding or telling them in light of all this? Why would he bring that in there to seek the Lord? Because seeking God's face is the only way you experience his presence. That's what happened with Moses. That's what happened with Joshua. Saw what happened to Moses. And it said when Moses left, he lingered. He lingered there to, to speak with the Lord. And that's perfectly illustrated that when you seek the Lord, that's how you experience his presence. It's perfectly il illustrated in a story that we all know and have heard well. The story about Jehoshaphat. Because in 2 Chronicles 20, we read that a great, it says, a great multitude comes against Judah and King Jehoshaphat, Moabites and Ammonites and others. They're coming. Coming from the south, a great multitude. And here's what we need to see. They are not just facing like an equal battle. They are facing impossible odds. In the natural, this is certain destruction impossible odds and I would just ask all of us in here any of you have any of you faced what seems like impossible odds a situation when you see it coming or you're experiencing it it produces fear and I'll say I have many times in my 30 years of being a Christian I didn't want us to turn there because could get bogged down but you can go back and read Second Chronicles 20. But here's what we need to remember. You're thinking, ah, what are we talking about fear? But Jehoshaphat was a godly king. And it said when he saw that great multitude coming, guess what? He's a man just like we are. Nothing special as far as that goes, right? And it says when he saw that multitude coming that he feared. He sees these impossible odds, and he did what every man would do in the natural. He feared so just because you're afraid and you're facing a severe trial does not mean that you do not have faith. And it does not mean that these circumstances have to overwhelm you. They don't. No need to flee. No need to run. Because that's what you do generally when you're afraid, don't you? You run and you flee. Because the next thing you'll read that Jehoshaphat did, he didn't catch the next train down to Egypt. That's not what he did. It said he saw the great multitude and he feared. But here's what the Bible says. That was his first two reactions.
But it said he set himself, and we're talking about seeking the Lord will bring his presence in your life. It says in the Bible that he set himself to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. There's that four-letter word again. I'm sorry. I think it's something we need to start coming to terms with, right, about the fasting. But that's not my point today, and I want to move on. But it also says, though, he proclaimed a fast throughout all the land, and all of Judah joined him in seeking the Lord, getting before the Lord, and fasting. And here's what they all did. They're, they're looking at what's coming at them. They're saying, we need God's help. We do not have the power or the strength to overcome these combined armies, this great multitude that's coming at us. And it says this, they asked help of the Lord and came to seek the Lord. And you read and it says, King Jehoshaphat and the whole nation was crying out to God and seeking for his help because disaster is staring them right in the face. A great multitude's coming. We're in our text here. That is why David says what he says. Let's read it again. Verse 4, seek the Lord because what do we need from him? His strength and seek his face constantly, evermore. That is what we need to be doing daily, seeking our Lord. And that is where you'll find God's presence. Because that's what Jehoshaphat and Israel found as they prayed. Listen to what Jehoshaphat said. Here's what he said as he's saying a prayer. He magnifies God for his greatness and who he is. And he goes on to say this. We stand, he's talking about him and the people. We stand before this house and in thy presence. For thy name is in this house and we stand before you, Lord, in your house and in your presence. And what, what are we doing? And cry unto thee in our affliction. And you know what he says in his prayer? He says, this is what the Lord will do. Then you will hear and help. So you're facing a major crisis in your life. Seek the Lord. Get before him. Stand in his presence and cry out to him. And here's what the Bible says. Then he will hear and help. So they're seeking the Lord, they're standing in his presence, crying out in their affliction. And the Bible says when we do that, guess what? God will hear and help. He does, doesn't he? Can't we give testimonies in our lives that when we have done that, God is always faithful? I mean, we can. That is something to rejoice about. I'm really, this should not be a message that we're disheartened about, but encouraged. Because <laughs> we can do that. And God did the very thing. And here's what we need to see. If he did it in a situation like that back then, we could go through a bunch of situations, couldn't we? You know what we need to see then? If he did it then, the reason he's showing us that he did it then is so we can know for sure he will do it now. Okay? We really do. We can be encouraged. And he did hear and help because the Spirit of the Lord came on Jehaziel. I don't know whether he was a prophet or not, but he prophesied. And here's how God answered that. Here's the people. It's not looking good. And they're saying, God, we need you. If you don't come, we are sunk. But here's what God did. He anointed this man. And here's what he prophesied. You shall not need to fight in this battle. Set yourselves, stand ye still, and see the salvation of the Lord with you, O Judah and Jerusalem. And the prophet tells them, or Jehaziel, fear not. It looks like you got a lot to fear, but God is telling them, Fear not, nor be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them. 
We're talking about God's presence. He, he told the nation, for the Lord will be with you. And if God is with you, it doesn't matter who's against you. It doesn't matter what you're facing. You will be more than a conqueror through his presence being with you. And that's what the message is all about. So they began to sing, as we know, and the Lord caused the children of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir to destroy each other. And all they had to do was sing. He could sing as bad as me or as good as the people up on stage here. And it will work because it's their faith. It's not how well they sing. Aren't we thankful for that? So seeking the Lord and, and obeying his word, it does what? It brings his presence into our lives to help us out. And when that happens, everything works out, doesn't it? It really does. It will work out even when it seems impossible. So here in Psalm 105, uh, we're not going to read them again, but in verses 5 to 15, David goes on to exhort the people, don't forget God's marvelous works, the works he's done, the wonders and judgments that he has performed for them as a nation, just all the mighty deliverances he's given them, whether it's bringing them out of Egypt or just all of them. He's not limiting it to just that. And he reminds them that the reason for that is because God had established a covenant with Abraham first, and then he confirmed it with Isaac and Jacob. If you read, that's what it says. Establish it with Abraham first, then with Isaac and Jacob. David says that God didn't keep that covenant because Israel was some great nation. He's saying, no, he kept that covenant when there was just a few of them. They were just few. They were not a great nation yet. And his presence, he's saying, was with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob when they're wandering in Canaan. And I'm saying there's some people there that would have put a big hurt on them except for one thing, that the Lord was with them, and he protected them in danger. So look, Psalm 105, we're there. Look in verses, we'll read 11 through 15. He says, saying unto thee, this is his promise to Israel, I will give the land of Canaan the lot of your inheritance. And when they were but few men in number, yea, very few, and strangers in it, when they went from one nation to another, from one kingdom to another people, he allowed no man to do them wrong. God did. Yea, he reproved kings for their sake, saying, Touch not mine anointed, and do my prophets no harm. Like I said, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they weren't a great nation. They're just a few individuals. They're trying to survive in a strange land and trust in God. But like it says in verse 14, look what it says. He allowed no man, God, to do them wrong. In Genesis, if you read, go back in Genesis, it gives accounts of all three of them where they got in situations where their lives were in danger and they were outnumbered. And he protected them all, though they were few in number, all three of them. And then some. You know, Abraham, he had moved down to Gerar. And the king down there takes a liking to his wife, and Abraham's like, well, she's my sister. So the king's like, yeah, no problem. It's his sister. And brings her in. He's going to make her one of his wives, and God appears to him in a dream. And he says, you touch that woman in any way, and you will be a dead man. And guess what? He got rid of her real quick. <laughs> Wouldn't you? I would. I'd have got rid of her like real quick. I wouldn't care what she looked like. <laughs> but here's the significance of that. So we're talking about God was with him, and it goes on to say, And Abimelech spake unto Abraham, saying, God is with you in all you do. And he recognized that. 
And Isaac had a similar encounter <laughs> with King Abimelech over his wife, Rebekah. And after God had delivered Isaac and Rebekah, it says this, The Lord appeared unto him, Isaac, the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham thy father. Fear not, for I am with you. Says the same thing to him. Don't fear. I am with you. My presence is with you. I will be your protection. And I will bless you. God's presence delivered him again. And then we know when Jacob was returning to Canaan, after dwelling with, with Laban, Esau, um, when you read that account, Esau is coming after him, and it says they, uh, he's got an army, and they are riding hard. And I'm telling you, at that point, Esau is still, he is going to wipe him out. That's what's going on there. And do we know what happened? How did, how did that all turn out good for Jacob? It's because he wrestled with God. And God, through that wrestling, he changed Esau's heart <laughs> that night. Because I'm telling you, Esau was not thinking good thoughts. The Lord delivered Jacob and changed his heart. And here's what he said, though. Here again, listen to this. He told Jacob, behold, I am with thee. Do we kind of get to see the pattern here? I am with thee and will keep thee in all the places whither you go. God says, I will not leave you until I have done that which I have spoken to thee of. And that's his word to us. He'll be with us until he's done what he's going to do with us. And then maybe we can get our heads chopped off by ISIS. I know, we're not believing for that. I'm not either. I like my head. Sometimes. <laughs> Most of the time. Uh, but what I want to get to is the one, the one thing all three of these men had in common was what? God's presence was with them to watch over them and to deliver them. That's what we need to see through that. So sometimes, let me say, sometimes it may very well feel, so it's saying they were few in number, it may very well feel like the situation you're in, you are totally outnumbered by the powers of darkness. It's an overwhelming demonic flood coming your way. Or that your circumstances are so overwhelming, what can I do about this, right? And also sometimes feel that you are facing them by yourself. You just have that feeling. But, but are you and I really alone? Are we? So listen to what Jesus said. He said, we're talking about they were few in number, and sometimes you can feel like you are the only number. And Jesus said to his disciples, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Luke 12, 32. He also said this. He said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee, so that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. Isn't that what we've been talking about here? When God is with us, he never leaves us. And so thus, we have help. We can't ever say we're helpless because the Lord's with us. And I will not fear what man will do unto me, Hebrews 13. And Jesus also said, we all know this in Matthew 10, are not two sparrows sold for a farthing and one of them shall not fall on the ground without your father but the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear you not, therefore, because God says we're of a lot more value than birds. And that should be a comfort to us. So listen, just as God was with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and his presence was with them and protected them and delivered them, he will also do the same thing for us. When danger seems like it's coming our way, 
That's what our God promises us. And it should put a smile on our face. <laughs> so anyways, now we're back to Psalm 105. And I want to look now here at Joseph. He's dealt with those first three patriarchs. He says, moreover, he called for a famine upon the land and break the whole staff of bread. He sent a man before them, even Joseph, who was sold for a servant, whose feet they hurt with fetters. He was laid in iron until the time that his word came, the word of the Lord tried him. The king sent and loosed him, even the ruler of the people, and let him go free. And he made him lord of his house and ruler of all his substance to bind his princes at his pleasure and teach his senators wisdom. And what we're going to see here is it's the same thing going on. And that's why I gave the context. It's all because of God's presence. God's presence is what enabled Joseph to endure the trials that he went through. So we all know that he had a dream that his mother, father, and his brothers were all going to bow down to him. And his brothers got angry. And out of envy, they sell him into slavery. He goes into Egypt, becomes Potiphar's slave. His Potiphar's wife tries to seduce him. And he remains faithful to God, and as a result of being faithful to God, what happens? He's punished. He's thrown in jail as a result of that. Put something there in Psalm 105. I want you, if you would please, turn back to Genesis 39. And what I want to see here, here he is rotting in this jail, but yet God's presence is what sustains him in his trial. So we're in Genesis 39. And look what it says three times. It says it here, starting verse 2, 39 to, And the Lord was with Joseph, and he was a prosperous man, and was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. And his master saw what? That the Lord was with him, and that the Lord made all that he did to prosper in his hand. And Joseph, as a result, found grace in his sight. And look down in verse 21 of the same chapter. So he's in this prison. Verse 20 tells us that, and he was there in prison at the end of verse 20. But, there's a big but there. You're in prison, you're in a trial, but, verse 21, the Lord was with Joseph and showed him mercy and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. We'll just keep reading. And the keeper of the prison committed to Joseph's hand all the prisoners that were in the prison. And whatsoever they did there, he was the doer of it. Verse 23, the keeper of the prison looked not to anything that was under his hand. Here's the third, reason, third time. Why? Because the Lord was with him, and that which he did, the Lord made to prosper. So three times we see there, Joseph was not left to himself in that dungeon, was he? Three times we say that God's presence was with him and helped him and gave him favor and grace and caused everything he did just like we're back to the ark at Obed-Edom. Everywhere that ark goes, a blessing takes place when people are right with God. It's the same thing with Joseph. God's presence was with him, and he's blessed. And so Pharaoh's butler, we know the story, and Baker are eventually put in prison with Joseph, and each of them has a dream which he interprets, and the butler is restored to his position, and what happens to the baker? He gets hung. It wasn't good news for him. He's hung. But when Joseph interprets the butler's dream, and he knows it's going to be a good end for that butler, he's like, would you just please remember me? So look in chapter 40. You should still be there in Genesis. So we look in chapter 40 in verse 14. He says, you know, look what he says to the 
Butler, but just think on me when it shall be well with me, with thee. And show kindness, I pray thee, unto me, and make mention of me unto Pharaoh. And he says, bring me out of this house. <laughs> and look at verse 23. He gets out. And what does it say in verse 23? Yet did not the chief butler remember Joseph, but what happened? He forgot him. And look what it says. And it came to pass at the end of two full years. It looks like he should have gotten out of there, and you know what he got? This is a prison term. It's called a two-year flop. You're like, a two-year what? What's a flop? Well, what happens is we go in prison. We're in prison. These guys come up for their parole, and, what, and they go before that parole board, and if the parole board turns them down, they get what's called a two-year flop. That means it's two more years before they have a chance to, to get out again. Two years. It's called a two-year flop. And I'm telling you, some of those guys, I, I don't know how they decide who gets out and who doesn't because a lot of these guys, I'm like, I'd keep you locked up for life. And next thing you know, they're out on parole. And there's other guys in there, I'm saying they come to our meetings, and I'm saying they are genuine, not fooling anybody Christians. And they've got a perfect prison record and all that, and they get the two-year flop. And these guys, the one, they're basically telling them, you're sure to get out. And they get their expectations raised. And these men have said the hardest thing for us is we're away from our families. And the one brother, he, he's got daughters that he's, he's having to watch them be raised by his unregenerate wife. And it's killing him. And he wants to get out and be with them. And he thinks it's going to happen. And next thing you know, I see he's got the news. Two-year flop. Two more years before I have any chance at all. And it is very hard for them to take. And guess what? Here's Joseph. Had to be the same thing with him. He's like, I've been faithful to God. God has obviously had his hand on me. And here it looks like I've interpreted this dream. God gave me the interpretation. I'm, I'm ready to get out of here. It's looking good. And guess what happens? The door slammed right in his face. That had to be so discouraging. Because you think about it, we know the end of the story. He didn't. He had no clue if he'd ever have another chance, if he'd ever get out again. Tremendous trial of his faith. And you think about this man's life. All of his circumstances in his life, from the time of his brothers, went from bad to worse. And I'm saying at this point, I would, if you put yourself in his shoes, you talk about people hitting rock bottom, this would have had to been the rock bottom experience of his life. And this is what I think his prayer sounded like. If you would, this is what I think he would have prayed. If you would turn to Psalm 69, I think this would probably sum up Joseph's prayer at this time. And maybe sometimes we've prayed prayers like this or felt this way. Beginning in verse 13. Psalm 69, 13. But as for me, my prayer is unto thee, O Lord, in an acceptable time, O God, in the multitude of thy mercy. Hear me in the truth of thy salvation. And Joseph had to pray this. Deliver me out of the mire. Let me not sink. Because he probably felt like his heart was sinking. Let me de be delivered from them that hate me. And out of the deep waters, let not the water flood overflow me. Neither let the deep swallow me up. And let not the pit shut her mouth upon me. Hear me, O God, he would pray, for thy loving kindness is good. Turn unto me according to the multitude of thy tender mercies. And hide not thy face, thy presence from thy servant. For I am in trouble. Have you ever felt like that? Hear me quickly. Draw nigh unto my soul and redeem it. Deliver me because of mine enemies. 
You have known my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. Mine adversaries are all before thee. Reproach has broken my heart, and I am full of heaviness. And I looked for some to take pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. And I think that's what Joseph would have been praying, something along those lines. And I'm sure that's exactly how he felt. Nobody there to comfort him. His family's gone, been taken away from them. The one person he thought would help him doesn't help him at all. It's got to just be overwhelming this man at this point. And so what's the one thing that sustained him through all of this is he would have still known the presence of God, I believe, to some degree. He still had to seek God's face. He still had to trust that God would reward him. Isn't that what we know in Hebrews 11:6? Without faith, it's impossible to please God. He that comes to God must believe that he is, and we have to believe by faith that he is a rewarder of anyone that diligently what? Seeks him. So I know a lot of people in here have had and are facing similar disappointments. But there's some things that should encourage us here from Joseph's account. So let's go back to Psalm 105. And we'll see. And here's one thing that we need to see from this account. And the first thing we need to see is, and we, need to, we talk about this all the time here, I think we all fairly well know this, but that God was in control of everything going on with that man the whole time. He was. So, so look in verse 16. Who is the one that caused this famine to come to the land? This is say, verse 16. He, moreover, he called for a famine. And who's the he? It's God. He's controlling everything. If you go through this psalm and you read all the he's, God is controlling. That's why I'm saying it's his sovereign presence, his sovereign control over events. And who sent Joseph into slavery? Look in verse 17. He, it's he again, he sent a man. And who was the man? God did. Now, in the natural, it looks like his brothers are plotting. There's a lot of things that had to go together, but the whole time, they're making decisions. They're making wicked decisions. We know that. But all of it, God is controlling. Even the decisions of the wicked are behind this man's fate, if you want to say. There is no fate. God's in control of it all. Even the control of the wicked decisions that are affecting Joseph. So we can have insurmountable setbacks, seemingly, like Joseph, two more years in prison. I mean, man, oh man, two more years, Lord. I, he didn't know that. It's like, I thought I was out of here, and I'm not. What a setback that would have been to him. But we must maintain, maintain faith in two things. There's two things we need to maintain faith in when we're in trials like that. And one is the unwavering goodness of God towards his saints. You cannot let the devil rob that of you. You've got to trust that God's goodness is coming your way. And also, the other thing that we've just talked about is the sovereign power of God to be in control of all events that are taking place. Nothing is out of his control. So we need to have both of those going, though. You could believe he's sovereign, but he doesn't like you. And then it's like, man, he's working everything against me. And Joseph could have thought that. So he had to maintain the goodness of God towards his people. Faith in that, and that's what we have to have. Because when we look at verses 16 and 17, a man said this, and I thought this was good. Joseph, at this point, now he might not have looked at it this way. He was God's man in God's place for God's time. 
And we know this verse. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. And we still believe that, don't we? Amen. So the question comes up then, if he's God's man and God's time and God's place, then the question is, then why is he suffering like he is? Why is he suffering like he is? Look in verses 18 and 19. And he was. It says, they hurt his feet with the chains, the fetters. And he was laid in iron until the time that his word came, the word of the Lord tried him. And sometimes we want out of those chains, don't we? we? At almost at any cost. And so I asked the inmates one time, I said, let me ask you something. What if I offered you $1 million or the option of staying in prison two more years? So you can get $1 million and be gone or you can stay in here for two more years. And they're like, what's there to decide? Just give me the $1 million and I'll be a thanking you and I'll be on my way. It's like, that's, that's not a hard decision to make. Well, let me see, let's look at it this way, though. What if it's God's will that you stay in this prison for two more years so that he can do a work in your life, in your heart, that is of far more value than $1 million? It's got eternal value. It's his way that he's going to bring you to maturity and to be like Christ and to come into his kingdom. You want the million dollars still then? You've got to look at things the right way. Because here's what he says, God, God had to do a work in this man, and that's what he does with all of us, and we can't despise our trials. In Deuteronomy 8, he wrote this to Israel, You shall remember all the way which the Lord thy God led thee these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and to prove you and to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or no. And Joseph showed what was in his heart, didn't he? He was faithful. And he goes on in Deuteronomy to say, He humbled you and suffered you to hunger and fed you with manna, that he might make you to know that man does not live by bread only, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord does man live. And he also adds this on the end. You shall also consider in your heart. Think about this, God says, that as a man chastens his son, so the Lord thy God chastens thee. And do you chasten your son because you hate him and you want to ruin him? No one does that. None of us do that. You do it for their good, their welfare. So sometimes God does bring us, like Joseph, very low. And it seems like I don't know how I could get any lower than how I feel right now. Well, we have to remember here in Joseph's life, in our lives, and it's hard to remember when the world's coming on top of your head and your life seems to be crashing down. What we've got to remember with Joseph is the whole time it was like that, and he probably had those thoughts at times. God had never left him, had he? Had never left him, was with him the whole time. And he'll be with us. And there's times I know that this is the case. It seems like this trial is going into the core of your being. And that is, look, look in verse 18. This is interesting. Because it says that Joseph was sold for a slave. And verse 18 says they, he, they hurt his feet with feathers and he was laid in iron is what the King James says. But the actual Hebrew could very well be translated, the iron entered his soul. And that it, to me is speaking of he is outwardly being hurt. I mean that, those chains are rubbing his feet raw. But it says the iron entered his soul. That chain did a work on the inside of that man. 
So it's an inward and an outward work that's going on there. And when it's like that, when you're in those kind of trials, I mean, we've been there, most of us, right? You just want to cry out to the living God to just relieve you from that agony. And so we just need to remember, hey, you, you're not alone. Joseph felt the same way. It says that iron entered his soul, that trial entered his soul, did a work in him in that way. And who else do we know that that's happened to? What about the Lord Jesus Christ? You think it wasn't entering his soul when he's on that cross, suffering the humiliation, people mocking him, the pain he's going through, and he has to cry out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? You think that hadn't entered his soul? And so that's how he can help us when we feel that way, because he's been there to the nth degree. And so whenever we feel that way, we can come to him, it says in Hebrews 4, and find grace and mercy to help in time of need. We can come to the throne and, and he'll give us that grace and mercy because it says he's, we don't have a high priest that can't be afflicted with our infirmities. He's felt the same way. To use a worn out politician's phrase, he has felt our pain, truly. He really has, and he will help us out. And the Lord, through that, when he comes and you cry out to him, he'll comfort you, he'll strengthen you, and he'll manifest his presence to you in the time of that trial. You may not get your deliverance right away, but God will be with you when you cry out to him. So the last thing I want to see with Joseph here is that after God's word we read has tried him, verse 19, and the time, until the time that his word came, the word of the Lord tried him. And it goes on to talk about after he'd been tried, after he'd passed his test, after God had done that work in his heart, God lifted him up and exalted him, second only to Pharaoh. And that's what we have in verses 20 to 23. The king, the king sent and loosed him, the ruler of the people, let him go free. <laughs> Freedom, that's God letting him go free, not just the king. Made him lord of his house, ruler of all his substance, to bind princes at his pleasure and teach his senators wisdom because he learned some wisdom. He learned some wisdom down in that jail. He also learned some true humility. He really had. His pride was probably about as leveled as a man's pride could be. And that's like Peter. You know, Peter went through quite an ordeal when he denied the Lord. And you know what? I think Peter is probably asking himself after he did that and the Lord looked at him and he left wept bitterly, he probably thought, how in the world did I end up here? I never thought I would deny my Lord. I really never thought I would. And yet, there he was. But did that disqualify Peter? We all know it did not disqualify him, did it? He missed it big time. Didn't disqualify him because part of the plan with Peter was, you missed it, but God was even in control of that. And Jesus told him ahead of time, when you return, which means he must have left, when you return, I want you to strengthen and encourage your brethren. God was going to even use that. All things work together for good, isn't it? And Jesus told him, I have prayed for you, Peter, that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. And at times you say, and you may be saying now, you're in this trial. you got this circumstance facing you. I don't understand why I am in this trial. What have I done? What have I done? Why is God doing this to me? And sometimes you wonder, does it even pay to serve God if this is what I get? The devil will put this in your mind. Am I his child? Am I really his child? Or am I just kidding myself? Because it really doesn't appear that God is blessing me. And I think Joseph had to deal with those thoughts. I'm sure he did. 
Because the devil, that's the way he works. Well, like I said, God's blessing and presence was with him all the time. He just needed to have those two years. He needed to have a little more gold work done on him. He hadn't had the finishing touches put on him before God could trust him to elevate him. That's what that was all about. Because for one thing, what if that humility hadn't been worked in him? How do you think he would have dealt with his brethren when they came? Probably not too nice. And they were afraid of him. But yet he was able to say, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And Joseph was glad to give them food and glad to bring them in there with him. He needed a work done. And so did Peter, didn't he? Peter needed a work done so that he could become the leader and the front person in the church, didn't he? And that's what part of that whole denying the Lord and having to deal with all that was all about. It worked a humility in Peter that when he finally stood up and was the spokesman in Acts 2, he was ready. Had to have a work done. And how about David? You know, we read about David at the beginning. Well, he didn't begin as king bringing that ark back with all that joy. You know, he's anointed king by Samuel. And you know what happened to him? He became a hunted man for a long time. A hunted man by Saul. Until one day, God had brought him low enough. He had that work done in him. And he says, now is the time I will exalt you to the kingship I promised you years ago. But he had to have that work done. In 1 Peter 5, it says this, God, he resists the proud. We want to manifest pride. God will resist you, not just put up with you. It says God resists the proud and he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. And that's what we're seeing with all these men, Joseph, Peter, David. It says that he may exalt you in due time. And God will be the one to determine when the due time is. We don't determine that. Right? Because, you know, you think, I was telling Lisa, you think about David. That had to be such a temptation to him when twice he knew he was anointed king. He knew that Saul was unjustly pursuing him. And twice he could have had that man's head cut off. And he could have taken the throne that seemed to be rightfully his. But you know what? It wasn't his due time. And he'd have been touching God's anointed, and that would have been a problem for David. And he had to see that. And you know, it's funny, David and Saul are quite the contrast in a lot of ways. I said earlier, one's a giver, one's a taker. But you know, we, we talked about it Wednesday night. When Nathan the prophet came to David, you know what, David? He took all the blame, and he accepted that chastisement humbly. But when Saul disobeys the Lord and is confronted by Samuel the prophet, with his disobedience, what did he do? Just the opposite of David. He justified himself and said it was all the people. Quite a contrast. And so we're saying God resists the proud and he resisted Saul because of that and gives grace to the humble, the humble like Joseph, David, Peter, and our supreme example, our Lord Jesus Christ. He is highly exalted above everyone, Philippians 2. And rightfully so. <laughs> rightfully so. So here's the conclusion of the matter. You know, when you're in the bottom of the pit looking up, a lot of times I'm saying it's hard to understand what benefit there is in this trial you're going through. It's a lot of times hard to see it. You've got to get past it sometimes many years and look back and say, at the time I didn't understand it. I couldn't think my life couldn't have gotten any worse. I couldn't have had a a bigger trial to go through, and it didn't make sense to me at the time. And it seemed like God was against me. But now I look 
back and I see, no, he was my loving Heavenly Father. I, there was a purpose in all of that. And it was ultimately now, I see now, it was for my good. Hasn't that happened for a lot of us here? I'm sure it has. You've been able to look back at things. And Joseph would have struggled with those same questions. Hard to understand. Why is this happening to me? He's given me this promise that I'll be exalted, my mother, father, da-da-da, and it's, it's happening. Everything is totally the opposite of what I thought was coming my way. He had to be struggling. Thinking he's getting out, and then finally it's like, man, I'm forgotten even by God. The butler and God apparently has forgotten about me in here. Wow. But here's the point of the whole sermon, and I am really just about finished. The point of the whole sermon is this. Number one, if you will seek God, put him first, and seek him diligently, despite of whatever the difficulty you're in or you are facing, we saw, didn't we, if you do that, then what's going to be the next thing? You're going to experience his presence and power in your life. You will. And after God has done his work in you, and it will benefit you, and it will probably benefit others, then he will exalt you in due time, in his due time. But here's the thing. We've got to trust what his word says, don't we? When we're in we've got to, It gets back to that every time. We've got to trust what God has told us in his word. And it is trustworthy. He will be with us. He will deliver us. He will show us his power. If we seek him, he will. So we have to ask ourselves, do we really and truly believe that God loves us and works all things for our good? We need to believe that because he says he does. <laughs> not because we're making it up. I want to believe that. Almost, no, we're not making it up. That's what God says. He loves us and works all things for our good. And so when we believe that, then, hey, we're back to the beginning of this psalm. Then let's give thanks unto the Lord. This Lord that loves, let's call upon his name. Let's make those, when we do and he answers, let's make his deeds known among the people. Let's glory in his holy name. Let's sing to him. Sing songs unto him. And let us, from here on, seek his face as believers forevermore. That's our life, isn't it? To seek his face. And then when we do that, we will have the blessed assurance that his presence is with us no matter what we face. And he will make all things work out for our good. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you, Lord, for this psalm you've given us here. And, and that we can just see, Lord, that when we seek you, and you are the one that causes us to do that. But when we seek you, Lord, and put you first in our lives, that you will manifest your presence to us. And even when things seem like they're going from bad to worse, you're still with us. And if we'll just stay with you, Lord, and stay with your word and keep trusting your word, you will exalt us in due time. You will bring that manifestation. You will deliver us from whatever trial seems insurmountable. And we will see your power and we will give you glory. And we just thank you for showing us that today, Lord. And I just ask that you'll allow this to just be emblazoned in all of our hearts as we go forward in these days that we are going to have to know how to trust you and how to seek your face and how to know that you're with us in difficult times. And we thank you that you'll do that for us, Lord. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.